0: week of Wednesday, February 27th, 2019. This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, universal health care coverage in Washington State, with one of the lead sponsors of legislation aimed at finding the right path forward. Emily Randall is a first-year senator representing the 26th District, and we talk with her about Senate Bill 5822, which will investigate how to get every Washingtonian covered. Then, following a series of racist graffiti in the Klajani neighborhood, Sammamish residents gather for a vigil. And we will also have our weekly call to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead. So, stay with us. So as most listeners know, we have talked a great deal about the possibility of Washington being the first state in the nation to implement universal health care. But even with expanded majorities in each chamber, there are still a number of details that are going to need to be worked out. And so key Democrats in the state Senate are pushing for the passage of SB 5822, which would create a commission that would determine how best to proceed with the goal of universal coverage. And joining us to talk about this is one of the lead sponsors of the bill, Senator Emily Randall. Kendall. senator welcome back to the show
1: thanks so much for having me back Stefan and for ha- taking such a an interest in healthcare policy you know it takes all of us to move this forward
0: well yeah it does take all of us and before we get into exactly how uh you're proposing to do that I just want to say this is the first time that you have been back on the show uh since the election and uh congratulations
1: well thank you so much I'm thrilled every day to be here doing the people's work.
0: Well, it's tremendously exciting. And I will just say, you know, you uh, have quickly become one of the public faces of a pretty prominent piece of legislation. And I'm wondering, what do people like to kind of ease in uh, when they are elected to the state Senate? Do you maybe feel like you've thrown yourself into the deep end here a little bit?
1: Well, what other way is there? <laughs> um, you
2: know, if you're going to learn how to swim. Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. And, and I was drawn to this work, um, to policy work. Because of my family's own experiences with healthcare, yeah. because I spent my career for 10 years working to expand healthcare access to families all across the country who were facing barrier after barrier, and this is what has drawn me to Olympia. And so why waste time um, when you have big issues facing you, You know, big issues that are facing all of our neighbors? We this is the work that we need to do.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you've talked about how some 400,000 Washingtonians are uninsured right now. And it's just it's alarming. So let's get into uh, what your bill would do. Um, So I know that while people are very excited about the prospect of universal health care, there are roadblocks, and the first of which was acknowledged by Representative Noelle Frame in your Facebook Live event on Monday in which she said that establishing state universal coverage would require Medicaid waivers from the federal government, and that's not politically possible right now. Uh, So just so people fully understand, what is a Medicaid waiver?
1: So, the Medicaid waiver is a you know d- dispensation from um the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services to use our federal funding in a different way. Um, we get funding from um the federal government for Medicaid and Medicare patients, and in order to do transformational policy change, we need to get approval. But in this current political climate with the federal government that we have, we don't have the possibility of getting those waivers to use that money in a
0: different way. So- Well, I'll ask you, why not? Is is the federal government unwilling to grant the waivers due to partisan reasons? Why not?
1: I think there are partisan reasons involved. Um, I would like to believe that Extending healthcare to everyone in Washington state and to everyone across the country was not a partisan issue. Yeah, wish. We're seeing yeah. time and time again that the opposition to transformational healthcare policy does fall along party lines, and that our uh, colleagues on the other side of the aisle are often taking uh, the side of what I'd like to call the medical industrial complex, Mm -hmm. you know, that puts profit over people.
0: And I'm actually not alone in this and and being of the mind that uh, health insurance doesn't really work very well when there's a profit motive, because if there's a profit motive, their main uh, obligation is to shareholders. And therefore, they're going to be working to deny you coverage as opposed to making sure that
2: you're properly covered.
1: Right. And we need to make sure that our system of healthcare delivery is all about care. It's all about um, people being able to receive the health care that they need when they need it and not risking putting themselves into bankruptcy. We know right now that health care and medical debt is the leading cost of bankruptcy and we need to relieve the burden. On the people of Washington.
0: Yeah. Well, so let's talk about your bill then, which is called the Pathway to Universal Healthcare. This is SB 5822. The companion bill in the House is 1877. And this would create a healthcare study work group. So just tell us briefly who are the people and the groups who would be represented in this work group?
1: We want to bring everyone to the table. We've had actuarial studies in the past, and we've had some other exploration of. You know what other states other countries are doing Um, this work group is all about getting both the buy-in politically and building the path forward so that when we do have the ability to get waivers from the federal government or when we do happen upon a bunch of money (laughs) figure out a better way forward we're ready And so this brings everyone into the table. It brings, first and foremost, um, consumers or patients, you know, folks who are buying healthcare coverage, who are receiving care. It brings providers. It brings um, employers with experience with small and large um, group Coverage, You know, folks who buy large and small group insurance. Um, it does bring the plans to the table. It also brings the health, the health care authority is the convener, and it brings the health benefit exchange along with other state agencies. Um, including our fiscal agencies, that have the expertise to figure out how to move us forward.
0: And so how would you cast that net to find people to be a part of this group? Um, it, it would seem that the representatives from state health agencies, would, they would probably volunteer themselves. But in terms of finding consumers who would be directly affected by the sick people, um, business owners, uh, how, how will you go about finding those people?
1: yeah well we've been talking to um a lot of advocacy organizations um a lot of constituents um you know across the state and you know collecting all of these stories all of the experiences so we have a quite a large list of folks who have either signed in on the legislation or in other healthcare legislation you know folks who are interested and are raising their hands over and over yeah. to say they want to be a part of the solution so we will have no shortage of names
0: I think. Yeah. You know you you talk about finding a quote political path forward with all of this and that's really the purpose of convening this group. Um And one of the things that you mentioned in your Facebook live meeting is that you're looking to create a sustainable system. And I'm wondering if we move too quickly on something like this, is your concern that a potential universal health care program could say wind up being challenged in court, that it would be vulnerable to the change of the balance in power and the makeup of the legislature? How do you see it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I will say that all of those things give me a little bit of pause. I Before um, I came into this world, I did work briefly in higher education financial aid. And before the Great Recession, a lot of institutions had hugely robust uh, financial aid policies to do away with loans. And then the recession hit and... They had to renege on all these promises that they made to students. Yeah. And so I live with that sort of reminder that we need to make sure that we're building a strong framework, a framework that um, can resist the swings in the market, a framework that will ensure that folks can count on the health care that they receive. Because right now, you know, folks are in a state of flux, a a state of worrying about whether or not their doctor's visits will put them in debt, whether they will be able to pay for, you know, all of the things that they need to pay for in addition to their prescriptions um, that have a rising and rising cost. And we don't want to be adding to this worry among Washingtonians. We want to be relieving the worry. And that's why I think we need to be careful and strategic
2: yeah.
0: And, you you know, you're talking about building a, a strong and durable framework here. And I think, you know, certainly people who are in in advanced age uh, have more in the immediate to worry about. But you're a millennial and so you're you and your cohort are going to be in this for the long haul. Right. So you really are going to yeah. want to make sure that if you create something that it's going to be stable. So, you know, um, I'm going to ask what I think is uh, a bit of a bonehead question, uh, but this stuff is not easy. Uh, As you and I were talking before we began, uh, a certain politician said, who knew that health care could be so complicated? Uh, But I'm I'm just going to kind of put this out there. Are there ways to do this without uh, needing the Medicaid waiver?
2: Yeah.
1: So um, there have been some proposals that rely on either an income or a capital gains tax or um, heavy fees. And we know that healthcare delivery costs money. We know that we're going to have to pay for a system that covers everyone. But I don't want us to be paying for a system in a way that is not constitutional or might be challenged um, in court. We know that uh, income tax is unconstitutional.
0: And well, when you're the, saying unconstitutional, I assume that you're referring to I sixteen hundred, which would have imposed a one percent uh, income tax. Correct.
1: Among other, you know, potential solutions that have been kicked around. Yeah. You know, I think any any proposal I've heard that doesn't depend on waivers is dependent on one of those funding mechanisms, and I don't think we're ready to move in that direction.
0: I am going to pursue that just a little bit further, having done uh, some reading on SB 522. This is uh, Senator Bob Hasegawa's proposal, uh, his bill, and this would ostensibly – put money into a public trust. Now, the way that that gets funded, uh, as you say, is somewhat controversial, um, but it wouldn't rely on federal funding as much. Uh, there's also the governor's cascade care bill, which works with the ACA. Uh, are these the sorts of things that your group will be considering as well?
1: So I think um, speaking of the governor and Senator Fox cascade care, um, i You know, in some conversations with my colleagues, it seems like there might there is a path forward for that this year. And it's not a fix to the entire system, but it is um, a fix for the small number, you know, 5 percent of Washingtonians who are on the individual market right now. Mm. So I don't see my I don't see 5822 in um, conflict with Cascade Care at all.
0: Right, because Cascade Care is really more – it leans or relies more on the private marketplace, as you say. Um, So so then based on what your group finds, um, it will make recommendations to the legislature. But this is not Mm -hmm. intended to craft a potential piece of legislation, correct?
1: Well, we'll see. Mm. Um, (laughs) There will be recommendations. There will be a report.
0: I mean is that something that you would like to see? Would you like to see a piece of legislation come out of this ideally?
1: I th- I, mean, I think our job as legislators is to figure out, you know, the best way to create policy that's good for all Washingtonians. So if I'm still here when we wrap up, which, you know, I, I think I will be, um, I want to make sure that we're moving forward in a positive direction. And whether that looks like the legislation or not, I can't answer right now. But I do think that there needs to be continued action. You know, we're not just having a convening a work group for the sake of a work group.
0: Right. And so if there are recommendations that come out mm-hmm. of the work group, your intent then would be to push for them afterwards. Yes? Yep. Okay.
1: yes. Yes.
0: So the bill is currently heading to the Ways and Means Committee. How do you mm-hmm. see its chances if it's brought to the floor for a vote?
1: I feel pretty good about it. You know, I've talked to my colleagues in Ways and Means. I've talked to colleagues you know, who aren't on that committee, um, to gauge interest, you know, the, the cost of this work group is not large. And, um, I think we all value the important work of coming up with strong healthcare policy and a path forward. You know, my colleagues across the state have heard from their constituents that healthcare costs are too high, that the system is not working for them. And we all want a solution, um, the reason why this pathway I believe is so popular is because it's not prescriptive. It's not, um, you know, just a vehicle to a solution that we already have in mind. It is, you know, a conversation. I think the best policy making happens when we bring the most voices in the room. When we are able to listen to people who are impacted on the funding side, people who are impacted on the care delivery side. Um, you know, people who represent the full range of folks in our communities and in the healthcare field. And so, this feels like the best, um, most effective. Um, Step forward to get us to a place where um, Washingtonians can feel safe and cared for.
0: Yeah. And as you say, I mean, we're really all invested in this together. And pursuant to that, I'm wondering, the meetings themselves, will they be, uh, will the proceedings of those meetings be available to the public?
1: That's a good question. I have to be honest, I have never attempted to watch uh, work group meetings in a committee that I am not a part of. So I would love to make them as accessible as possible. And I have talked to folks about the possibility of convening meetings in you know different regions of the state, having conversations not only with the stakeholders involved, but with constituents in different geographic areas where they face different challenges. So, you know, my my effort will be to make them as accessible as possible.
0: Well, we'd love to follow up with you on that. And if there are going to be any public meetings that people uh, could you know potentially weigh in on, uh, I'd love to let them know about that. Um, Beyond that. So the bill is Senate Bill 5822. What can people listening do who would like to help out, voice their support, help push this out of committee and get it to, to the floor for a vote?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple ways for folks to stay engaged. One is to go on the legislature's website, leg.wa.gov.
0: And, and I'm find, actually feeling at this point, like, because we've been talking about so many things that have been happening in the legislative session, that that should just be a permanent uh, link on the right. the show's website at this point. Wa. leg. or leg. wa. gov. Yeah, yes, so it's there. Keep it yeah. bookmarked. Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: and you, you know. Find bill information, type in 5822, and then there'll be a button that says comment on a bill, and your comments will go both to um, the co-sponsors of the bill, but also your own legislators. Another way, and I think equally as important, is to continue having conversations with your neighbors and you know your networks on social media. I feel like we're seeing a big shift in the way that folks engage with the legislative process. And- Social media and podcasts and, you know, um, maybe non-traditional ways of engaging are becoming more and more popular. So I want to see people in their communities talking about the bills that are important to them, sharing um, the issues, advocating online and offline.
0: So comments at ledge.wa.gov, engage on social media, and just really be talking about uh, bills that, that matter to you. Uh, in particular, we're talking about 5822, and we've been speaking with Senator Emily Randall. It is such a pleasure to talk to you again. Congratulations. It's just wonderful to know that you're uh, you're there representing us.
1: Thank you so much, Stefan. This mine, I'm going to let it shine.
0: On Sunday, Sammamish residents gathered in the Klahani neighborhood for a vigil in response to repeated incidents of racist graffiti being spray-painted on homes and on cars. The event was put together by Platopians for Peace and was led by Sammamish City Council Member Pam Stewart, who said the intent was to call as much attention to the issue as possible.
2: I
1: do like the idea that we shine light on this. Uh, some people have discussed possibly, you know, not talking about it, not getting press on it, but I think we have to. I think we, we can't pretend like it's not happening and we have to really talk about it and get it out here and make it clear that it is not okay because not taking a stand is condoning it and that's not okay.
0: Platopians for Peace founder Sarah Haas Kimsey echoed another sentiment expressed by a number of speakers at the vigil that, while the acts themselves are indefensible, some compassion may be in order.
1: It's highly likely to be a youth, and unfortunately, they feel like they need to act out this way. So I'm worried that this is somebody who's a loner, who feels left out, who feels they're on the outskirts of something. And um, I think we need to come together as a community to look out for our youth and who may be the perpetrator who needs help.
0: Sammamish Chief of Police Michelle Bennett said she and her department were working overtime to get to the bottom of the incidents and that she was heartened by what she saw at the vigil. That's really the silver lining is the community coming together as one. And regardless of what somebody writes or does, the community response is always going to be greater than one person whose ill-thought-out plans made it their way onto a wall. We also spoke with 5th District State Representative Lisa Callen, who talked about a bill currently in committee in the House that is aimed at identifying and responding to bias-based criminal offenses.
2: Really, it works
1: on strengthening the hate crime language in state law and creates a work group to study the ways that we can actually really work to enforce um, and fight against the, high, the hate crimes. I think we have to particularly pay attention to all of our opportunities to One, show light on so people understand what a hate crime is, um, understand the impacts of what a hate crime does, and then really build our sense of community and understanding around our tolerance of it and making sure that everybody realizes we won't tolerate it and uh, have a way to enforce that.
0: That bill is HB 1732 if you are looking to support it. And then finally, we spoke with Emily Stewart. She was there to lead the vigil in song, and she encapsulated the spirit of Sunday's rally pretty perfectly. Even if there's a lot of hate in the community, as said many times, love can drive out hate. Like most of these remarks that were like painted were racial and so race is just like hair color or something like that. It's just something that you look at. So it shouldn't matter, but if you look past that, that's what matters inside. So. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And next week we'll check in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisibles, Washington's 8th District. And we will get our calls to action. Hello, Stephen. Howdy, Stephen. How's it going? Good, man. Uh, so, you know, since we talked with State Senator Emily Randall about the state. Senate pathway to universal health care bill that is 5822. Uh, Let's talk about something else that we mentioned in this segment, which is the governor's cascade care plan. This is Senate Bill 5526, uh, also House Bill 1523. And uh, as I noted, uh, it does work with the ACA exchange, and we are officially asking people to support it. Give us just a little bit more detail on how cascade care would work.
2: You bet. So as you were saying, this is... um going to enhance or improve um, an already uh, successful implementation of the Affordable Care Act here in Washington. So, we know that uh, ACA is covering uh, more than 800,000 Washingtonians, Um, but what this would do is make some improvements to that in in a couple of areas. And so, the the two areas, your listeners may recall that, uh, especially a, a year or two ago, Um, There was a lot of concern that there were counties or areas of the country that were down to just one offering. It was a take-it-or-leave-it choice um, if they wanted health care under ACA. Um, So what this would do for Washington is it would... Uh, ensure that no matter where a person lives in the state that they'll be able to um, go through the exchange and choose between multiple options for comprehensive health care at an affordable cost and then the other thing it would do um, is that it would uh, establish a a public funding mechanism to make sure that um, people would be able to afford their health care regardless of their means so um, it would do those those two things to improve uh, affordable care coverage here in Washington state.
0: Great. So this is something that is ultimately intended to amplify or uh, increase access for the ACA. So that's great. Um, now, this is still in committee in both the House and the Senate. So uh, I think people are really going to have to see if their uh, House representative or uh, their senator is in one of those committees, Correct.
2: Exactly, so, as your listeners probably know there's a there's a number of hurdles that bills need to get through by a certain date during during the legislative session or or they won't be able to continue on they they you know they just stop making progress if they don't clear these various hurdles by right. certain dates so by the end of this week um the the hurdle that needs to be cleared is um, bills need to be out of either the Senate ways and means. Committee or the House Appropriations Committee. So the call to action on on, uh, these particular bills um, on uh, Senate Bill 5526, if your uh, senator is on the Ways and Means Committee, you should call them and ask them to um, vote to move 5526 out of uh, the Ways and Means Committee. And if your representative is a member of the Appropriations Committee, They should vote to move uh, 1523 out of the appropriations bill and and on for consideration at the House floor.
0: Yeah, and as I said in the last segment, uh, I think I should make the link to uh, ledge.wa.gov just a permanent feature on the website at this point just because I think it's getting a lot of traction through the website. So there you go, gang. Uh, You can uh – Go there and and see if your senator is on the the Ways and Means Committee or if your uh, House member is on the Appropriations Committee and ask them to move those bills along and get them to the floor for a vote for Cascade Care. Okay, so let's move on and talk about something that's happening at the national level, and that is uh, Andrew Wheeler, who is the interim EPA director. And after the resignation of Scott Pruitt, he uh, was was put in place there, and now there is a move to make him Trump's permanent EPA director director. And uh, so for people who may not know about Wheeler, tell us a little bit about him.
2: The the nominations from this administration just kind of make me feel like we're in a parallel universe where um, the people that they're nominating are like the exact opposite of what you would. It's like Bizarro World, Bizarro Superman. Remember that? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, Mr. Wheeler, um, the New York Times called Mr. Wheeler a coal lobbyist with links to outspoken deniers of established science on climate change. Hey, that's just what we Um, need right now. Yeah, exactly right. You know, after Scott (laughs) Pruitt. what could, what, what could I do to improve the situation? I know. Let me get a climate denier in there. Um, um, and uh, as uh, Senator Whitehouse said, uh, in Andrew Wheeler, the president has tapped yet another fossil fuel industry lobbyist to help uh, in the capture of the Environmental Protection Agency for big polluters. So again, you know, this guy used to be a coal lobbyist, for crying out loud. And so clearly all the administration wants to do is to allow their cronies to continue to uh, feed at the public trough and to bend environmental regulations so that uh, um, polluters can make money and uh, that that the American people will not have any protection from this.
0: So Wheeler's nomination is now facing a cloture and confirmation vote uh, because you can explain these things better than I can. Uh, Explain what that means.
2: Sure. So um, as nominations progress, the president makes a nomination, that that nominee is called into the appropriate committee to testify Uh, when they after they testify that committee will vote to recommend or not recommend them for consideration by the full Senate and so that's where we are with mr. Wheeler he has been um, recommended for consideration by the full Senate and so the first thing the Senate needs to do is they need to decide whether they're even going to take up his nomination or not and so the way the Senate decides whether to do that is by what's called a cloture vote. Um, So the Senate votes on whether or not to proceed with an issue. In this case, they decide they vote whether to proceed uh, considering Andrew Wheeler's nomination to be administrator for the EPA. The interesting thing about a cloture vote is it requires 60 senators uh, for cloture to close for, for the motion to pass. Um, so, um, I think there's one other nomination that's being considered by the Senate today, and so it's quite likely that, in my opinion, that, uh, Mr. Wheeler's cloture vote will probably occur in the, in the Senate tomorrow, and again, he will need 60 votes, um, in order for, for him to pass that hurdle. Um, once that, um, cloture vote passes, Um, Then, unfortunately, you know, in the past, nominations have required uh, more than 50 votes, but um, after both the Republicans and the uh, Democrats have decided to reduce that, um, a nomination now requires, a cabinet nomination now requires only 50 votes to pass, and I would expect that to take place, you know, within about 24 hours or so. Um, uh, of uh, de- depending on how much debate they allow on uh, Mr. Wheeler's nomination. Um, the cloture vote may say we're going to have 30 hours of, of debate or something like that, and then we will proceed to a full floor vote. So cloture vote probably tomorrow requires 60 votes. Once the Senate agrees that, yeah, we're going to consider Mr. Wheeler's nomination and we're going to debate for X amount of time, then a full vote of the Senate and only requires 50 senators to approve that that nomination yeah so it's a simple uh, simple
0: majority there and i should mention that we're actually recording on wednesday february 27th um given the makeup of the senate this definitely is looking like a long shot to prevent him but what are we asking our democratic senators to do here
2: yeah as always um uh, democratic senators please throw up every roadblock you can refuse to uh, uh give consent certainly vote no to, um, for the cloture vote and lobby your Republican colleagues, especially um, centrists like uh, Lisa Murkowski yeah. and Susan Collins and Cory Gardner to also please uh, vote no on uh, cloture.
0: Okay. And then uh, just one last item. We talked a couple weeks back about H.R. 8. That is the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, and that would require a background check on all firearm sales. And now as an additional measure, there is House Bill 1112, which is the Enhanced Background Checks Act. This would operate in addition to or in conjunction with H.R. 8. And uh, I should mention H.R. 8 is not passed yet. But talk about 1112 and what it would
2: do. Uh, Absolutely. So what HR uh, 1112 specifically does is it allows adequate time for background checks to take place. Um, So uh, the the loophole that uh, HR 8 is trying to fill is that um, if you buy a weapon from an authorized gun dealer you have to go through a background check, but if you go to a gun show or the internet, or you know some kind of a private gun sale, um, no background check is required. well, even where a background check is required uh, from a from an authorized gun dealer, um, the n r a and Republicans have um, reduced that requirement to the point where uh, the the background check must be done in three days, and if it 's not done in three days doesn 't matter, then the the gun sale can go through so there 's a hard seventy two hour time limit. Um, to accomplish those those uh, background checks, and, and and I can't remember which um, of our many recent uh, mass shootings, I think it may have been the one in Charleston, where the um, purchaser, the, the person who committed the crime, um, actually couldn't pass a background check, and um, but the, but it took longer than 72 hours to determine that, so that person got their gun anyway, even though if they'd had enough time to complete the background check the gun seller would not have been allowed to, to sell the weapon. So in this case, it increases the length of time, I believe to 10 days, and it removes the um, restriction that if the, the um, background check can't be accomplished in the required time period that the gun sale can go forward anyway. So it, it essentially closes the loophole on um, people being able to run out the clock on a background check.
0: And this is uh, basically a common sense gun safety measure that, uh, as we know by looking at polling, particularly when it comes to universal background checks, uh, a majority of Americans and even a majority of NRA members support this kind of thing. So this is the sort of thing that uh, if we had a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president would sail through and is yet another indication of a messaging bill. This is the sort of thing that we don't expect to pass but actually want to send a message with. So we definitely want our Democratic House members to support it. So give them a call and uh, you know who they are and uh, you know what to do. So that'll do it for this week. Uh, Stephen, as always, thank you for all of your, your great work. Thank you for the clarification. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. My
2: pleasure. Talk to you soon, Stephen.
0: That's going to do it for this week's show. Hey, you guys, do me a quick favor, if you don't mind, and head over to iTunes and rate this show. I would so appreciate that. It really does help. And as always, for links to everything that we talk about here on this show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org, and I would love it if you would subscribe if you have not already. Also, please keep the emails coming. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle, where you can catch me being oh so clever, is at indivisible pod the washington state indivisible podcast is a production of get creative inc thank you again to my guest senator emily randall special thanks to ken Folkley, and as always my thanks to you guys for listening we'll talk to you next time bye